epistle lesson for the morning is found in Romans chapter 5. We are reading verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we gather around your word, as we come to hear your voice, we recognize that our minds are darkened, that we are blind, except for you giving us understanding by your spirit. And so send out your light and send out your truth today. Illumine us. In your light, may we see light. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As a young pastor, I found myself at times baffled by this difficult thing that I had signed up to do, rather repetitively, that we call preaching. It was helpful to learn by some trial and error. It was also helpful to have seasoned pastors, mentors, Listen to sermons, provide critique and feedback, even though some of those sessions were extremely painful. During one of those conversations where I was speaking with a minister who lived some distance away, he shared with me one of the most helpful things that ever happened for him in the course of his preaching. He was planting a church, and one of the very committed members of that church plant, who was one of his members of the core group, one of the most committed people in the church, also a friend, on a particular Sunday made a cardboard sign. During the service, as the sermon was going on, the friend went to the back of the sanctuary where he held up the cardboard sign, not for anyone else to see, but simply for the pastor as he brought the sermon to a conclusion. The sign had a simple question on it, only two words, so what? <laughs> what does what you are saying matter? Why do I need to do anything about what you are claiming? What difference does it make? What does it mean? Why exactly do I need to listen? So what? It's actually a very penetrating question. And it's the question that Paul arrives at here in chapter 5. 
We've seen that over the first several chapters that he labors long and works hard to express to us the human problem and predicament. That humans have rebelled against God and turned not to his wisdom, but turned away from his wisdom into our own wisdom. That we wanted to be the judge of truth and error, of right and wrong, and so we rebelled against God and set off on an autonomous path. And this is what the Bible calls sin. That it's much more than just some trifling errors, some things where we've been naughty or not nice, but that it's an intentional rebellious act against God. This is the human problem and predicament. But yet then we see in chapters 3 and 4 where Paul announces what God has done about that human predicament and problem. That God has done the unthinkable thing for us. That he's offered us righteousness. That is, he's offered to forgive our sins and to count us righteous despite everything that we've done against him. And he does so through Jesus. And we've seen that he calls this what it means to be justified, to be counted right before God. But so what? What are the implications of that? That God counts us righteous. What is the life that then follows from that? In verse 5, he enters into that, into answering the question. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the so what of justification. We have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God. The hostilities between humans and God has come to an end. And in fact, what Paul will argue today is that this reconciliation has been so completely and thoroughly and convincingly worked out through Jesus that three times Paul will say that we can rejoice in God. It is somewhat the theme of these 11 verses. It's that theme of rejoicing that takes center stage in verses 1 through 11. And briefly, ahead of celebrating at the Lord's table, where we will come to rejoice in God, to boast in him, we'll consider three reasons that we can rejoice in God. First, we rejoice because of what we have received. In verse 11, Paul sums up his whole argument. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's important to note that this word that we translate rejoice is actually a difficult one to render from the original language into English. Doesn't mean that we don't have access to its meaning, it's just hard to find one particular word that captures it. Because you see, this word has nuances of joy and nuances of confidence. In fact, in other places in the book of Romans, in chapters 2, 3, and 4, the word is rendered boasting. And so what we find here is that there's a joyful confidence of boasting that takes place in God. In chapter 4, we saw that it's possible for humans to have a negative form of boasting, and that is when we boast in what we do in order to obtain something from God. 
That is when our boast is found in the works that we do to try to earn something from God, where we try to put a claim on him. And we're told that that's the wrong form of boasting, that when we try to earn our way into God's presence, when we try to make God happy, that we are into the wrong form of boasting. But the boasting that's commended to us here, this rejoicing, this joyful, confident rejoicing in chapter 5 is about what we have received from God, not what we obtain in order to please God. So Paul in verse 11 explains that what we've received is we've now received reconciliation. This is that God has established a state of peace between us and him by what he's done in Jesus. But the simple fact is that this rejoicing, this joyful confidence, because we've been reconciled, will forever seem like a foreign language. And we will always feel like we're outsiders until we get an accurate account of the human problem. That the good news of the gospel only makes sense to us when we understand the logic of human rebellion, of just the way that we've turned against God. And so for the self-righteous, those who consider themselves as people who have something to offer God, the gospel never makes sense. They never feel that there's a lack of peace. They're never unsettled or they're never disquieted in front of God because they don't really take account of sin. But we've seen that that path is not open to us. And also for the self-satisfied, that is those who are filled up and imbibe the pleasures of the world, maybe with some thought of God in their mind and heart, but not really focused on him. They too are not disquieted because they're filled up with the things of the world. But yet, when we encounter the living God in his voice and our sins are revealed to us, it's there that we can begin to hear the good news of reconciliation Because in verses 6 through 10, we're given four descriptive terms of human beings, and that's you and I. We're told that we're weak in verse 6. And then he adds another word to it in verse 6, that we're ungodly. And this applies to all human beings. In verse 8, we're given the label of sinners. In verse 10, we're told that we're enemies. That's the net result of our rebellion against God. And so it's critical for us to accept the magnitude of the human problem and predicament. Because it's then in understanding the magnitude that the response of God to our predicament and problem exactly becomes astounding. And Christianity will always be terribly boring to you. Except when the predicament and problem are understood. Because then it becomes vital. And it becomes interesting. And look at the answer that God provides in verse 6 to human sin. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
These sentences are somewhat difficult, but the logic is fairly self-evident and plain enough. It's a rare thing for someone to die for a just person, a righteous person. It's perhaps a little more common that someone would die for a good person, or what would probably be better translated, a benefactor. It was common in the first century world that you would give your life for a benefactor, someone who had helped you along the way. And so Paul says it's possible for humans to do that. But God does the unimaginable. He doesn't send his son for benefactors. He doesn't send his son for righteous people. No, he sends them for the weak. He sends them for the ungodly. He sends them for sinners. He sends them for his enemies. Those who have rebelled and fully participated in it, which is every one of us, this is what God does in the demonstration and outpouring of his love. He sends his own son into that world to die for sin. And because of that sending, because of Jesus coming and accepting our judgment on the cross where he stands in our place, where he takes our ungodliness on his own head. Because of that, we're reconciled and we're received. And this is the gift that we have received in and through Jesus. And yet, friends, even for those who are very familiar with this, we struggle to accept it. We struggle to receive that reconciliation, to believe that the hostilities have actually ended, that God actually loves us. Seven years ago, the Colson family adopted a dog. She was rehomed to us, roughly a year old. We don't exactly know when Sophie's birthday is. She was bred here in Florida, somewhere around Live Oak, Florida but she was a highly attuned bird dog who went to a Canadian farm. She had a much more glamorous life in the Rockies during her first year, but she was neglected. She was wildly disobedient, kind of crazy because of the neglect. She was never physically abused, and so the breeder actually took her back, and then he rehomed her to us, and he told me, he's actually a Presbyterian minister, he said, this dog's going to cost your wife a smile. <laughs> and so Sophie came home to the Colson family. She was loved. She was adored. She was cute and crazy. She destroyed uh, the backyard and the house almost immediately. But she was loved by the family. But a couple of weeks into our ownership of Sophie, we noticed that she had some bald spots forming, that she was losing hair at a rapid rate. And so we quickly went to the veterinarian, and we were asking, what's wrong? And she said, well, how long have you had the dog? We said, well, we just received her. This is her story. And she said, yeah, well, it's not surprising. Dogs also go through things like trauma, and what you're seeing is stress. And this is what happens for a dog when it undergoes stress, and they often lose their hair. And so we asked, well, what have we done wrong? We said, there's nothing wrong. You are loving the dog. You are treating it well feeding her, caring for her in every way. But what you have to realize is that she comes to you with a story, with baggage and a background 
There's lots of insecurity. And now there's change. And she's trying to figure out what to do. And friends, we come just like Sophie. We come to God. He adopts us and receives us into the family. He announces that he is at peace with us, reconciled. But yet due to all the baggage and all the fears and all the insecurities and all the uncertainties and all the sins that we've committed, we're not convinced to hear that we have been. Something has happened in the past that has definitively reconciled us, that that has happened. We struggle to receive it. But this is why we can rejoice, because you now have received reconciliation in Jesus Christ. A second reason that we can rejoice is because of the security of our future. If you follow in the second half of verse 2, Paul begins to argue. He says, through him, that's through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And then, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. These are words that we're familiar with from the book of Romans. Back in chapter 3 and verse 23, he says that all humans have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is, we forsook it. We turned away from the glory of God. And now what he's arguing is that the hope of this glory has been restored. Paul will fill this out in great detail in chapter 8, this glory that is being restored. But this glory refers to a comprehensive picture in which God dwells with human beings once again in a physical world. And chapter 8 tells us that there will be no more death and decay. There will be no more injustice and sadness. There will be no more wrongdoing and unrighteousness. That all the sad things of our world will disappear, that will be overwhelmed by the grace of God. That the world will be raised to renewed and new life in the resurrection powers of Jesus. That that is the hope of the glory of God that is in front of us. That's the horizon that sits out. And the thing is, is that we can boast or we can rejoice this joyful confidence we can have about that future because it certainly and it surely belongs to you and it belongs to me and it doesn't belong to us due to any attainment on our behalf, but rather due to the attainment of Jesus on our behalf. It's that sure and that certain that it belongs to us because it's been accomplished by someone else. It's not just well-wishing, I wish for a better future. No, it's sure, it's certain, it's guaranteed. Paul makes that future clear in verses 9 and 10. There he speaks of our future deliverance from God's judgment. And he uses a certain form of argument that was common in the world of the first century. He moves from the greater thing to the lesser thing. In other words, if this one thing happened, then certainly this second thing will happen. And so follow his argument. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, 
much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God has done the impossible thing, Paul argues. He's reconciled you. When you were an enemy, in his great love, he overcame that hostility. And so now it's but a small thing for God to save you in that final day of wrath and judgment in which the world will be renewed. You are safe from that because you are in Jesus and righteous in him. God will deliver you through that judgment. And so our confidence in this future, this future where we will inherit the glory of God and a world that's pregnant and full of meaning and purpose, a world that's free from the stain of sin and death and decay and all the sadness that you and I experience. That world is ours, and we know that objectively because of an event, the event of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection that he secured this for us. Friends, this is a source of rejoicing, of boasting in God, because God and God alone has given this to you. But finally, the third reason that we can boast in God is that we can rejoice even in our sufferings. Verse 3 Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And this is one of those elements of the Christian life that baffles many. Many who profess the faith, and definitely those who are outside looking in. This doesn't seem to make sense. But Paul recognizes that our sufferings, our afflictions, that every one of us carry in this life, that all those difficulties, that all these things work together to build hope. That the conflict of sin within us as we war within ourselves, being dislocated in our own hearts and between our own desires, that the frailty of our bodies as we age and we watch ourselves slowly move towards the grave, the relational strife that we encounter, the great difficulties that we surmount in relating to one another, both on individual and corporate levels in our world, the deep pains and the loss inflicted by death, the sorrow that accompanies life in our world, the injustice of life in a broken world, and the sadness that accompanies all of that. That these are the sufferings, these are the afflictions of the human race that we travel along with. And note the logic in Paul's train of thought in verses 3 and 4, that we know that the suffering produces endurance, and this endurance produces character, and this character produces hope. That this is the fruit 
of suffering when it's translated rightly through the lens of Jesus, that our sufferings and difficulty, that it translates and moves us into hope because we recognize what this world is not. And when we experience its deep disappointments and its bitterness, rather than sinking into cynicism and despair, the Christian is drawn up into the hope of the glory of God, the vision of the world made right, that our eyes are removed from the sufferings of the present moment, and they're fixated on the glory that lies in front of us and before us. Now, but each of us knows and recognizes that our sufferings have the tremendous capacity to work in the opposite direction because they frequently don't engender hope. They don't induce that, but rather makes us grumble against God. Several years ago when I was planting a church in Arlington, Virginia, I was in dialogue with a young man who was very knowledgeable in the scriptures. He had a master's of divinity and also a PhD in theology. He was considering whether or not to serve in the church as a pastor. And so he stepped into an internship with me and we began to work together. And it was fairly quickly that I began to note two characteristics when he received feedback. There was a real defensiveness and there was also a highly critical spirit It somewhat surprised me because it came on so strong and somewhat seemed to come out of nowhere. Made it very difficult to have serious conversations. There was a prickliness and a chippiness that was hard to penetrate. When challenged about anything, from sermons to conversations, he always seemed to indicate that he knew more and knew better. Just under the surface, there was a load of cynicism and there was a load of bitterness. So over time, as we walked together, trying to chip away at some of this, the real truth began to come out. You see, what was happening in there was not just really that everyone else didn't get it and didn't see it and didn't know things, but that bitterness, that cynicism, that chippiness, that critical spirit, that defensiveness. All those things were just symptoms of a failing to suffer well. He was frustrated that he had not been able to find a good and satisfying job. He was deeply frustrated and angered by the fact that despite being over 30 years old and having worked really hard in his studies, that he was being overlooked for position after position. He was frustrated that his wife had a serious autoimmune disease that racked her body. And he was frustrated because in the culmination of all of these things that delayed the start of their family time and time again. And what was happening was at his core, he was struggling, understandably, to interpret all of these sufferings, all of these afflictions through the lens of the gospel, to allow these deep disappointments that hit us in some of the most sensitive places, to allow those deep disappointments to direct us to the hope of the world to come. 
A world where the sad things no longer prevail, where the injustices and the cruelty, where our own divided hearts, all these things are eradicated and swallowed up by the grace of God. And friends, this is the battle that each of us has to engage. And the practical question, the so what, is how are you doing? Are your sufferings being translated into hope? Are they working down that chain of thought that we've just read in verses 3 through 5? Or are your sufferings cultivating a bitterness and a distrust? Are you becoming brittle, difficult to approach? Or are you simply just ignoring them, acting as if they're really not real, taking the stoic approach to it, as if you could remove yourself from it, that they're not important? Or are they overwhelming you? And do your afflictions in this life simply leave you an anxious wreck? And in Jesus, one of the things that we're being pushed into today is that the difficult and the hard places of your life and of my life, that these become some of the most fertile places where hope is cultivated. And so we can rejoice even in our sufferings, Paul says. Because it's in the midst of that suffering that God does something uniquely for us. And he spells this out in verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so earlier we talked about the objective establishment of peace because of the death of our Lord Jesus. But now Paul is arguing that there's something subjective that God does for you and in you. That he convinces you of his great love. That even in the midst of suffering and affliction that he's not forsaken you because he's poured out that love in his spirit in the heart. And so friends, don't miss out. Don't miss out on this opportunity to rejoice that yes, we can rejoice, we can boast in the reconciliation we've received in Jesus. And we can boast in the hope of future glory. But yet don't miss out on boasting in this final thing. In your sufferings, in your afflictions. Allow that to induce you to hope. To hope of the glory of God revealed in a world free from sin and free from all its pain and bondage. This is the character of the life that has been put at peace with God. We're able to rejoice even in the most difficult moments because we've received everything that we could not do for ourselves in Jesus. And because we have a secure future only because of Jesus. And because we know that Jesus fully identifies with us in all of our pains and all of our sorrows, even our afflictions and our sufferings, these two work together for good and produce and encourage hope. And friends, this is the so what. Everything in life depends on this. 
that if we've been justified and set right with God, then it changes everything about our approach to that life. And so let's ask God to help us with that, that this, this rejoicing would be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge and we confess all of our weakness. We recognize that we're shy to embrace all of this reconciliation that you've given to us. That oftentimes we still live as orphans who are outside and we fail to receive the terms of peace that you've established through your son. And so teach us to rejoice in him, to give thanks, to celebrate, to boast confidently that we have been received by you, that we have a standing and access to you in and through your son. And also convince us that the future is ours as well. And help us especially to believe that sufferings and afflictions are ours. That these produce hope. And so may these occasions in our own lives, the very ones that characterize our own congregation today, help us to draw near to you in and through them. Give us your grace and pour out your spirit freshly upon us that we be convinced of your great love in all of our difficulties. We do thank you that we have standing and access to you through your son. And so this morning we bring our prayers on behalf of our congregation and on behalf of our weary world, asking that your grace and your love would be shed abroad throughout that world. That men and women from the nations of the earth would know your grace and your truth. That they would experience the so what of the gospel. And they'd be brought, brought to fresh and to new life in Jesus' name. And so we pray for the Gethsemane Garden Christian Center. And we ask God that you bless Nerea as she directs this ministry of caring for over 750 orphans. Convince these children of your love for them and send them out from the ends of the earth to all the ends of the earth to proclaim Jesus' name. We pray also for our mission partner, First Coast Women's Services. And we ask God that you bless all of their efforts to minister to those in our city who contemplate life. God, we ask that you preserve and save life, that you be merciful and that you draw people to Jesus in that process. Bless our volunteers who give themselves to this ministry weekly. And Father, we also pray for our mission partner, Kurt Nelson, as he and his wife, Pat, grieve the loss of their eldest daughter. Bind up their wounds, O oh God. Be gracious to them and come to them. We pray for all in authority, especially pray for our mayor, Lenny Curry, and we ask God that you would endow him with a mind and a heart to pursue justice, to restrain evil, and to uphold integrity and truth in our city. We ask that you give him wisdom, that you give him endurance, that he govern well along with our city council. Father, we pray for all who grieve and suffer in our congregation. We recognize there are many who labor long. They're afflicted in body and in soul. 
And so, God, we ask that you bless them, that you watch over them, and that you keep them. We pray for Barb Day, and we pray for Gar Garganius. We pray for Hector and Viona Harima. We pray for Wayne Noble. Pray for Jewel Smith and Jim and Eileen Tyson. We also pray for Holly Bosma as she heals from knee surgery and Asher Park, asking God that his contusion be healed and restored. And Father, we especially pray for the Fosnick family this morning. And we ask you to heal their son, Lewis, and his frail and his little body. Allow him to properly absorb nutrients and recover from his surgeries. Give doctors and nurses and all who give him care wisdom as they direct and guide the schedule over the weeks and months ahead. And we pray for Mike and Carissa, for Charlie and for Theo. God, we ask that you would pour out your spirit and remind them of your great love. May they be drawn near to you in this time. And Father, we do pray for all the children of Christ Church. We thank you for them, the gift they are to us. You have promised to be their God. And so, Lord, may they grow up into the knowledge of faith to rejoice in Jesus and all that he is for them. Protect them and watch over them, God. All these things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.